I always say just kind of for fun that I have a love hate relationship with law enforcement because, you know, they're, they're a double edged sword. They could be your best friend or they could be your worst enemy. Uh, they could be the, the one who defend freedom or the one who take it. Now more than ever, it's important to support companies and organizations that share our values. Our votes are not enough. Patriot Mobile not only shares our beliefs, but does something about it. They're America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier, and they donate a portion of every dollar to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Switch to Patriot Mobile now and get free activation with promo code MATT, M-A-T-T. Switching is easy. Just go to patriotmobile.com forward slash Matthew dash Lohmeyer. That's patriotmobile.com forward slash Matthew dash Lohmeyer or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. That's 972-728-7468. Today I have Ammon Bundy for governor in Idaho joining me. Ammon, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me as well. Um, I'm going to start this by reading something from your ammonbundy.com website. Uh, I did a little poking around before the interview today, and uh, despite having met you before, uh, I enjoyed reading this. So let's start here. Ten things you may not know about Ammon Bundy. Uh, clearly, people have heard your name, whether they're living in Idaho or not, whether or not they're aware that you're running for governor of Idaho. He is one of 14 children. Where it was. 14 children, same two parents, or stepbrothers, stepsisters? Yeah, I have a, it's a, my dad got remarried. She had four, but I, I was young and it's, it's, it's been really awesome because they're all brothers and sisters. And then, then they had three together. So uh, anyway, there's a quite a crew of us. Uh, what's the age span? So my oldest sister is, I think, 51, and my youngest brother is 24. He's just getting married next weekend. Wow. Congrats. Uh, maybe this uh, interview is going to come out right about the time of his wedding. So congrats on your wedding. Yeah. yeah. Next, he Emma grew up in the same home his dad had grown up in that was built by his grandfather. His first official job was working for the government. I emphasize uh, that part mowing cemeteries and parks in Bunkerville, Nevada. And we're going to revisit Nevada here in just a moment. As a defensive end, Ammon led the state of Nevada in quarterback sacks his senior year in high school. He was also a starting running back. Where was that? That was in the state of Nevada? Virgin Valley High School. Okay. Ammon was student body president of the high school he attended. Out of only 17 presidential pardons by President Trump, Ammon advocated for three of them, Dwight and Stephen Hammond and Phil Lyman. Perhaps uh, that's going to come up later in the interview. In 1997, at 21 years old, Ammon won a Utah, is it Toughman or Toughman? Toughman. Toughman. Comp- what's, a, what's a Toughman competition? Really what it was back then, it's like MMA, you know. It, uh, but back then it was kind of at the beginning of it, and so it was more more boxing than anything. Uh, but I did have to uh, register as a pro amateur in order to uh, enter. And uh, anyway, it was, it was intense. It was two nights of uh, getting 
uh, beat up, really. Is what it was. Well, you, well, it sounds like you you did win. So you got beat up, but beat up more, beat up others more, I guess. Yeah, it was. I I won some money, but I can tell you it was the hardest earned money I've ever I've ever earned. Well, MMA is uh, quite popular now. You you entered the arena just a little bit too soon because uh, now it's even bigger bucks and um, maybe maybe a little more brutal. I don't know. Uh, is there a video of is there a video of 1997 21 year old Ammon Bundy? They were supposed to record it, and uh, then when we went back to go get it, we never could get a recording of it. Uh, so I always regretted that because I, you know, I wanted to have that recorded, and maybe you know, looking at it, I wouldn't have liked it as much as I thought. But you know, I did fight with guys that were trained, and I really was more of an amateur. And uh, in fact, the the last the championship fight was with a, a trainer and uh anyway he had about a four inch longer arm than i did and uh he punished me pretty good but when i get inside i'd work him over pretty good so anyway but i don't have a video of it and there may be one out there oh, man. But I, I don't have one how long was that fight uh so they went uh three three minute rounds i believe is what they were three or were there four? Anyway, I think it was three or four three-minute rounds is what they were. Okay. Uh, he and his wife, Lisa, have six children, three girls, three boys, and 365 fruit trees. That's still accurate? Yep. What, what, what can I see behind you? You can see some of my trees, fruit trees in the back there. Uh, what, what fruit trees are those? The ones you're seeing close, those are actual plums. And then the, behind them, there's a whole bunch of apple trees. And then I've got uh, cherries, pears, and peaches. Awesome. Um, you're aspiring, uh, or we are aspiring to do what it is that you've done there. But instead, we uh, moved into a cookie cutter neighborhood when we moved to Idaho. So we've got some growing uh, to do still. Uh, last couple of items from your uh website ammon has founded multiple profitable businesses that still heavily influence the commercial fleet maintenance industry today talk just briefly about that well when i was 21 years old i started a fleet maintenance commercial fleet maintenance company um i didn't really know much about it but i had entrepreneur in my heart and i began to go contract with commercial trucks uh fleets uh, but these are the big trucks, you know, the delivery trucks mostly. Uh, we did some over-the-road stuff and uh, built that business up to be one of the largest private fleet maintenance companies in Arizona. And, uh, you know, I've hired hundreds of people, dealt with millions of dollars in budgets. And then kind of towards the I, – I sold that business after 21 years. Uh, but before I sold it, uh, about, you know, 17 years into it, we could see that the industry was really lacking uh, software and technology. And so we put a team together. I put a team together and, uh, you know, got a, a project manager, developed or hired developers, and, uh, and we built a software for that industry in my shop. And it took us about four years, cost a whole bunch of money, but we did a really good job because we worked with our customers our vendors, my technicians, office staff, and we fine-tuned this thing and really made it worth worth something. 
and then began to sell that to other shops. And now it's one of the leading fleet main, maintenance shop management softwares in North America. And Matt, since then, yeah. since then, I sold that as well. I sold that business as well. What year did you sell that? I sold that. Uh, I think I sold them both in a uh, one in late 2018 and one early 2019. Okay. Uh, last item on your website here under 10 things you may not know about Ammon Bundy. He served a two-year mission in Minnesota teaching people about Jesus Christ. Uh, I've spent some additional time on your website. I've spent time on YouTube watching uh, videos, recent speeches you've given, short clips. And um, I've myself probably four times now, maybe spoken in Idaho since I moved here a year ago. And at every single uh, conference, rally, meeting in which I participate or at which I speak, someone comes up to me afterward wearing an Ammon Bundy for Governor t-shirt and says, hey, I really like what you shared here today. Have you ever met Ammon Bundy? Uh, I think it's happened at, at every single one of those conferences. And uh, and the first several times that happened, I just laughed and said no. And uh, I wised up when it happened again. I thought, you know, this keeps happening. And said, hey, if you can arrange a meeting with Ammon, I'd be happy to meet him. And uh, so I ended up uh, just a couple weeks after that. Ammon, I hope you don't mind me saying, but we went to breakfast. I had a conversation with Ammon and very much enjoyed our conversation and finally uh, coaxed, kindly coaxed him to uh, join me on the show because he had some really important um, a personal journey and stories that he shared. Uh, and I, I'm curious and I asked 101 questions and and so I'll ask just a fraction of those today on the interview, um, because I'm I'm hoping, frankly, uh, people can meet the Ammon that I met uh, the other day. So I want to get right into, um, you know, kind of where I started. Um, I only had a vague recollection of some of what I'd seen on the news years earlier about Nevada and Oregon. And so your family, the Bundy family, has uh, had a ranch if I understand correctly, in Nevada for a very long time or lands that were leased to your family. Um, so would you mind talking through the history of uh, the Bundy family in Nevada and what, how much land you guys had and, and give us a little bit of that backstory before I ask what happened? Sure. So my family came into the Southern Nevada area in 1877. Uh, that's almost 150 years ago. Uh, I'm would be the fifth generation. Uh, so my children would be the sixth generation, even though they're, we're not there. But And so that gives you a little bit of perspective. They began immediately to run cattle on the foothills and to develop the valley uh, for farming, ag agriculture. And uh, it was not an easy place to be. It was very arid. The people that were there prior to us left and said that the place was uninhabitable. And uh, but my family made a made a go at it and survived there. And uh, one of the things that they did is they found waters and springs uh, on the foothills of the mountains there. And they the state of Nevada was only a state for 13 years at that point. But they in 1890 finally had a way to to deed their waters and grazing rights. They were they were tied together. The water and the grazing rights were tied together. 
And my family went through the process to get the deeds, went through all the legal procedures to make sure that they were, uh, you know, claimed correctly and that the deeds were right with the state of Nevada. And, uh, and then they continued to graze, uh, on that land, uh, and had the grazing rights to that land and the water rights to that land, uh, for 70 years. And then the Bureau of Land Management was uh, established. Uh, so in 1946, the Bureau of Land Management was established and, uh, it was fine. There was really nothing going on. The whole point of the Bureau of Land Management was to encourage people to use the land, uh, for, you know, ranchers, miners, loggers, everybody to use the land. That was what their purpose was. Uh, but then in the sixties, it began after World War II and kind of moved into the sixties. The federal land agencies, such as the Bureau of Land Management, Forest Service, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they began to be infiltrated with basically extreme environmentalists, uh, that had a different view of what they wanted for the land. And then in the late eighties, they, um, basically came to my father. Uh, this was after quite a bit of trouble though, back and forth because they were trying to, you know, regulate and, and do certain things with the land. And there was a lot of trouble there because it was a conflict. Uh, and ultimately then in the, in the, in the mid to late eighties, they began to try to claim that land and then control it as the owners of that land. Who and tried to claim it? The Bureau of Land Management, okay. the, the federal government. They, they tried to claim it and then to control it. And it was really a conflict for the people that were using the land because they had these deeds. Uh, they had mining claims. They had, uh, you know, in, in our case, we had grazing rights. Uh, and here you got the federal government saying that the land belongs to them and therefore they can control what um you know, what goes on on that land. And, you know, we're looking for the state of Nevada to, you know, to help us fight us because we have deeds with the state of Nevada and the state of Nevada is not willing to bite the hand that feeds them because they're getting all this federal money. And so it kind of left it to the ranchers and the miners and the loggers and so forth to try to fight these battles, which really wasn't a fair fight. And then in the, uh, right around the, uh, early 1900 or 1990s um harry reed was working on a project with a chinese corporation to build one of the largest solar uh farms in the world in fact i think it was the largest solar farm and it was 70 80 miles from the bundy ranch is that what i've seen i mean i've flown to california a number of times from various places and i've seen a massive solar ranch that uh, it seems to me is somewhere out in the middle of nowhere in nevada is that is that what i'm seeing or is it still a is it still a thing uh well probably i do think they got part of it built but i don't really know the development of it to be honest with you matt i i don't know where it's at i do know that there's a large one out there i don't know if this is the one or not um, but what happened was, is those solar farms, you know, take up, you know, thousands of acres and, uh, I guess the wildlife can't live in it and because of the heat or whatever. So the environmentalists got involved and, and said, well, we, we want to make the Bundy ranch an, uh, a mitigation area for the desert tortoise. And, uh, then the, they came in and they did a bunch of, to be honest with you, just fake studies showing that somehow 
the cattle and the and the desert tortoise cannot have it be in the same habitat, which was a lie because the primary staple of the desert tortoise, uh, you know, nutrition was manure from the from the cattle, and that the the true studies showed that, you know, that wherever there was cattle, there was more desert tortoise, and when the cattle left, there was less uh, desert tortoise, but. They didn't care about that. It was politically motivated and well, and, and theologically motivated as well. And so they decided to take our ranch and just uh, make it into a desert tortoise mitigation area and drive all the ranchers off. Well, my dad had a problem with that because he had deeds with the state of Nevada. He had also ancestral rights that were established clear back in the 1800s and, and and then also constitutionally, there was no authority for the federal government to own mass amounts of land inside a state unless it was for military bases, post offices, and a few other enumerated powers. Reservations were one of them, uh, Indian reservations. Uh, but nothing as far as owning, you know, large amounts of land uh, for for no enumerated purpose. And so my dad began to try to rally the other ranchers, some of them got involved. Uh, there was other ranchers that were, you know, fighting, but it was just such a battle. I mean, you're fighting the U.S. government and ultimately 50, uh, 52 out of 53 ranchers, you know, stopped ranching in that area. One of them passed away and the others just kind of gave up, leaving my dad as the only one. How long of a time period are we talking? You mentioned the 90s was kind of the last timestamp you've given us. Um, what time frame are we talking now where over 50 of these ranchers have just essentially given up in this fight with the federal government? I was born in 75 and growing up, there was many ranchers in that area. You know, they're always working together and helping each other and sometimes fighting with each other. And, you know, I mean, but, but we were a community. That's how I grew up. And then, you know, probably uh, shortly after a few years after, because I went on a mission, as you mentioned, I came home and I remember Keith Nay and my and my dad were the last two. This was probably maybe a year after I got off a mission, and Keith Nay passed away, leaving my dad. So we're we're talking like nine, by ninety seven, you know, from from the time I was born in seventy five to ninety seven, all fifty two ranchers were gone, and my dad was the last one left in that area. And you were living in Nevada at this time as well with your dad after your mission? Yeah. I mean, after my mission, you know, I was young and single and I was here and there, but still called home, you know, the ranch home. That was kind of my home base. Um, and so, yeah, I was around and, you know, I remember going to Keith Nay's funeral and thinking that, you know, my dad's like the last one, the last one in this area. And it was kind of strange. Uh, that all of the rest of them either just went out of business and couldn't make it, moved to town, um, or, I mean, or just, you know, sold. The, the county actually came in and under the guidance of the federal government came in and tried to buy ranches. And they, I think they bought 10 or 11 of them for about the price of a pickup. It was just terrible. So that, so anyway, the, then ultimately my dad was like out of survival and out of, you know, recognizing his rights. He's like, I'm not, I'm not leaving. This is mine. I have deeds with the state of Nevada. I, my family's been here for, you know, you know, a hundred, almost 150 years. Of course now 
back then it would have been 120, 30 years. And, and, uh, he goes, I'm not leaving. This is mine. And so the federal government's like, you know, yes, you are leaving. And there was this 20 year, like legal battle back and forth. And ultimately during the Obama administration, Obama thought he had enough political power and he had built up inside these agencies. They had built up the, these, uh, these army type entities where they had a military type force, um, SWAT teams, you know, equipment, helicopters, all of that. And so they decided in 2014, April of 2014, they decided they were going to just take my dad out. They were going to gather all the cattle, destroy all the ranching infrastructure, the water infrastructure that's been in in that, you know, that's the lifeblood of our ranch and has been developed for over a hundred years in that area. Uh, the corrals. And so they did that and they came in and, and the best way to explain what happened, Matt, was, is like a scene out of the Hollywood movie Red Dawn, you know, where you, they locked down the land. They took over a hotel in, in Mesquite and like barricaded it off, uh, with barricades and that was their, base and then they made a base outside about five miles from the ranch where they had all the equipment and they barricaded that off had sniper points helicopters and then they were patrolling this, this sounds like M-Ramps. a small scale war i mean it sounds it like they're, they're they're yeah they're basing troops and and waging a war to achieve some political aim yeah yeah On against American their own soil, citizens against yeah. citizens so there was 213 armed federal agents that came and were participating in this Wow. And they, they had four helicopters and ramps, um, you know, uh, and they, they put the ranch under siege. Uh, they snipers on the hills above our family home, um, locked it down. And uh, that was pretty intense. Uh, who, who remained behind at the ranch during that time when they've militarized the area, essentially uh, put it under constant surveillance, locked it down, put snipers on the hills of their are there fam? Is their family still there, or is it now just men that have been left behind? Are there kids there on the ranch? No, we continue to remain trying to function, you know, as as normal. Of course, we couldn't go out on the on the range at all. Um, if we attempted to, they would literally point their guns at us and threaten our lives. Um, and then one thing they might really interesting is because they expected there'd be some like. Uh, pushback, some uh, protesting demonstration of their acts. Um, ultimately, we found out that they were killing cattle from the helicopter. They killed about 60 head of cattle and was burying them in mass graves. And um, so th- they knew they were going to get some public outcry. So they actually claimed that all the land was not, was in, you know, federal land. And so therefore the Constitution didn't apply. And so that they built this little area that was corralled off with that orange uh, construction mesh. And there was like a corral. And they said, this is your First Amendment area. You can only demonstrate or protest in this area. And it was like two miles from, from, it was way out, way out in the desert. It was like two miles from, from where, uh, the turnoff is for the ranch. And then it's like five miles down to the ranch house from there. So, and well, but we, you know, we did not go into that area to protest. No one else did. And so when we're out, like, you know, we're kind of demonstrating people were there coming, started coming to our support. 
holding signs up and we were just like, Hey, we, you know, what is going on here? Then they just began to, you know, assault us. They sick their dogs on us. They tased us. They beat us to the ground. They even arrested my brother, beat him down all for not being in that first amendment area. So how much land are we talking about Ammon? Uh, how big was the property? Well, so the private property is just 160 acres to half a section. And, uh, but we're talking about the grazing area is, you know, it's a large area. It's, it spans for probably, you know, 30 miles, uh, 30 square miles, probably in that area. And, and so these water rights, cause it's a multiple, it's multiple use area where, you know, the, the grazing right belong, are deeded and belong to the rancher. And in that same area, you have a miner who has a mining claim and he owns that mining claim. And then you have hunters and hikers and fishers and all of that that are using the area, camping and so forth. It's, it's a multiple use area. And that's the way the West was developed. And that's, you know, and those rights were uh, adjudicated and established uh, in, you know, different, much like water rights are. Uh, through prior appropriation and beneficial use. And then the federal government comes in on top of the state and says somehow that the land, because it's not claimed, the actual real estate is not claimed by an individual, that somehow it's unappropriated and they're going to claim it. And so you get all these conflicts between actual rights that are deeded with, with the state and then the federal government coming and trying to claim the real estate on top of it. So, so you mentioned that that land, you know, in addition to that 160, I think you said acres of, of private property, then the water rights and the grazing rights were still officially deeded to the Bundy family during this time period for that miles and miles and miles stretch of land That's correct. that you were. That's and correct. so they, they shoot and kill and are burying, uh, cattle. You said 60 head of, head of cattle. How many cattle did you guys have grazing the land? We had uh, about 600 head, and they had gathered just shy of 400 and put them in the corral in that in that base area that I was telling you about. They had killed about 60 head from helicopters and other and and from abuse, uh, and were burying them, you know, mass graves, trying to cover them up. And then they also began to destroy our water infrastructure. Uh, my family went in there and began to capture the water from these springs and divert them into water tanks and troughs to feed the cattle or to water the cattle. And they began to destroy those water tanks and water, you know, springs and so forth with backhoes and dump trucks. You have to wonder, I mean, people that end up working in these federal agencies too, although in this case, clearly in my view, they are the enemy of the people. Uh, these are normal humans, normal American citizens who find themselves in federal agencies doing things. I, I can't help but wonder if many of them went home night after night and talked to their wives or their families and said, I can't believe what I'm doing. Yeah, I know that that did happen. I think it took like the public outcry to kind of wake them up, though, uh, because oh. there was actually some we have because this was all, you know, all now become official with court official court documents and so forth. And we have all this evidence. And there were some agents that actually even left says, I'm not willing to participate, well, but it was after them. it was after the public outcry though. You know, it's like, 
you know, they're doing all these things and the public finally says what you're doing is wrong. And then, then they're like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, this really is wrong. I don't want to participate. I'm going home. Uh, and it's unfortunate that it didn't happen before and uh, mm-hmm. to stop the whole thing. And, yeah. you know, so, but. Uh, so how does that, co- was, how does that end in Nevada? So oh, so ultimately, say that, ultimately, you know, how, how does that whole yeah, thing end in Nevada? Yeah, yeah, great question, right? Because there's like this cliffhanger hanging out yeah. there. Like, how does it end? So ultimately what happened is thousands of people came to the ranch from all over the country. Wow. Um, as far as we can tell, about every state was represented. People come from every state, including Hawaii and, and Alaska. And so we end up with all these people here, and they're not very happy with their government and what's happening. And uh, they basically go up to where they have the – the, their military type base and demand that they leave and, and, and turn the cattle back, uh, back to my father. And the sheriff finally gets involved, the sheriff deputy. Uh, now that just kind of give you an idea, this isn't some podunk, you know, sheriff with two deputies. This is the, the sheriff of Clark County where Las Vegas is and Clark County Sheriff's Department runs the Metropolitan Police Department in Las Vegas, he has over 1,800 deputies. He's a very, very powerful person. And he he's like on the fence. He doesn't know what to do. And finally, the public outcry is enough, and the sheriff, chief deputy comes down and basically gives the federal government an ultimatum to, you know, from the people. The people are demanding this. The sheriff rep, kind of represents them and says, you have an hour to leave. And so... We watched them within an hour pack up, rapidly pack up everything, all their personal gear and everything and get in vehicles. And within a, an hour, I watched 107 federal vehicles leave in a massive convoy and they left and, and never came back, never came back on the ranch. And that, and we went and got the cattle, put them back on the range and went back to, tried to get back to our lives. Yeah, and which lasts for a season, but uh, I'm going to get there as well. But now is perhaps a really good time. So you have this really, frankly, atrocious experience with federal law enforcement with the sheriff of Clark County. What's your view on current calls to defund police and just law enforcement generally? Anti? Yeah, I'm glad law you enforcement, asked or are you supportive? I mean, what, what's your views on the proper role of law enforcement? So uh, I always say just kind of for fun that I have a love-hate relationship with law enforcement because, you know, they're, they're a double-edged sword. They could be your best friend or they could be your worst enemy. Uh, they could be the, the one who defend freedom or the one who take it. And, uh, and so it's very, it's very clear to me. It's black and white to me. And that is, uh, you know, that we need some type of force to defend our liberties. We have military, we, and we, we do need some, you know, local forces to protect her. And so we need to honor that. That is, that is of God. It is something that is absolutely necessary and needed. Uh, however, this same entity in history has always been the tools to, uh, do terrible, terrible things to their own people. Um, uh, we know that over 200 million people in the 21st century alone or the 20th century alone was killed by their own government. And so we have to be very careful with this delicate balance. 
I think, uh, you know, our, one of our, the greatest founders in, in history of our country, George Washington said it best. He said, government is like a fire. And I'm going to, you know, paraphrase closely. He says, it can be a useful tool or a terrible master. And it can, if, if a fire gets out of control and it begins to just devastate and destroy and burn your home and everything, I mean, you're, it, it can be terrible. But if, but it also can be used to warm your home, to cook your food, to comfort you. But what's the, what is the key there? That it is held under control within certain limits and bounds. And that's the same with law enforcement. It is, it can be a useful tool or a terrible master. And so, you know, and I don't believe in this dichotomy that you either uh, fully support law enforcement and everything they do all the time or you hate them. I don't believe in that. Uh, I believe that there has to be this uh, this balance and we always have to be very watchful of of an of an open flame or it can consume us. Uh, Great answer. Yeah, I really appreciate hearing that. Um, So that's how this situation in Nevada ends. Are you. Are there any charges brought against you? Are you convicted of anything at that point? Not at that point. We, from what we understand, they tried to indict us with a Nevada grand jury, but the jury grand jury wouldn't indict us. They, they were like, they wouldn't indict us. So, so no, uh, they, they, you know, the federal government put and spent, you know, I don't know, millions and millions of dollars trying to build a, uh, you know, a, a case against us, but they could never get us indicted. Um, and so that's the way it, it set for a couple years. Okay. So what happens after a couple of years? So, but first of all, kind of getting to Idaho about yeah. a year after that. So our, our lives were turned upside down. I mean, I don't know how it's helped, how it helps to explain it. I was, I had a very good, you know, productive, really a really great life. And that turned our life upside down. We became, you know, scrutinized in the media, both good and bad. We were hated and loved. Uh, you know, everybody was wanting to interview us and it's just never stopped, never stopped till <laughs> even to this day. I mean, that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing. You yeah. know, so, uh, it, and you know, our private little lives became very public and everything that we did become scrutinized, good or bad. And, and it was never the same. I watched my dad come out of church uh, one day, just on a Sunday, on a flip phone, standing next to the church building. And he was doing an interview with a network that had over 28 countries covering over 300 million people. And that's just what our life became. And so I wanted to get away from that and move to Idaho. I I was kind of you know <laughs> escaping. And I also, Matt, I also saw something at the Bundy Ranch that I I never had considered and one is where our government was really at. But, and then two, uh, the true security of our liberties comes from each other and not from government entities. And I saw that at the ranch. And so I felt, you know, that Idaho was, you know, more of a people that I felt would defend each other and protect each other and stand with each other and then also I was, I was wanting to get out of the city. You know, the city had grown up around the little area that I'd lived in. And, and then my kids were at the age where, you know, I wanted them to be in a little town. And, and then I was trying to just get away from all of the media and hustle and everything. So I moved to Idaho. 
I moved to Emmett, Idaho in 2015. So you've been, and you've been in Emmett, Idaho ever since. Yeah. So, um, I've passed the, in June, I passed the seven year mark. So I'm going on eight years now. So talk to me about, um, now you're living, you're not living at the ranch at the time that, uh, ordeal took place beginning in April, 2014. Where, where were you living? I was in, uh, Levine, Arizona, just south, south of, of Phoenix. And I was well into my business. You know, I had my fleet maintenance business, my software development, uh, business. I was at, at the heart, kind of at the a pinnacle of that where, you know, I mean, I was making lots of money and I had lots of good employees and I was taking care of, you know, a lot of equipment and we were just starting to really sell this software, uh, you know, and, uh, and so that's where I was at. Yeah. I, my, my oldest was 12 years old. Your oldest was. Yeah. My oldest was 12 and my, my youngest wasn't born yet. And so, yeah, it was crazy time. My wife was pregnant and with my youngest and, so, yep, that's where we were at when I moved to Idaho. Now, now this same sort of thing, it sounds like, happens again in Oregon. So what happens in Oregon and how do you get involved? Yeah, so good good question. Um, so I moved to Idaho and I think I'm going to get some peace here. And I'm pretty much trying to ignore everybody. And I keep getting these messages and concerns about this family and uh, Harney County, Oregon, which is just a, you know, not very far from me where I moved to. It's on the Oregon side. I'm on the Idaho side, but they're just across the border there, not very far. And I'm pretty much like ignoring. I'm like, I'm, I'm, in fact, I, I even got upset with some people. Like my father was like very concerned about this family because what was happening to them was very similar to what happened to my family. Um, the federal government was coming down on them, trying to take their property. Uh, and using prosecution and the force of law to basically really, really hurt this family, even in worse case than our family. And, uh, cause they were trying to put them in prison. And I'd love to get into those details if, if appropriate here in just a little bit. But, um, but here I am, you know, trying to ignore this. And, uh, I even got upset with my father saying, look, you know, I, like I, we can't fight everybody's battles. Like, I mean, I have a young family and I, you know, I have a business and, you know, I'm, I have trying to take care of things and, and do the best I can. And I, we can't go out and fight these battles. They're, it's, it's very difficult, very, very difficult to do. And it's very risky, you know, put yourself in a lot of risk. And, and so, uh, I ignore this. And then one, it was a Monday. I lay down in bed. And my phone chimes, it's right next to me. I pick it up and I click on this link and it was about the Hammond family. And I began to read. And as I read, I became more and more moved and more and more concerned for this family. And I just felt, I mean, I, I, I call it a providential urge. Like I felt like I had to do something. It was my duty to do something you know, where much was given, much is expected. And we had been given a lot. What we, the people came and protect our family. Our life were preserved. My father's ranch was preserved. And, and so the next day I went, got my vehicle and drove over to this family and met them. Found out that they were just the salt of the earth, just good, 
good, humble people, just wonderful people that just didn't want to give up their rights and their property. Can I, can I interrupt and ask a question here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know why I asked for permission that time. I'm pretty good at interrupting and asking questions. <laughs> yeah. But, this is your uh, you interview. Know, <laughs> yeah, that's, well, I hate to interrupt your flow of thought, but did, were they running into the same circumstances your family was where a bunch of other ranchers or farmers had also been driven from one lifestyle that was more rural and maybe into the city, or was that a different situation in that regard? Well, exact, except it was even worse. Because the Blitzen Valley was all homesteaded as private property, and over a hundred ranchers were in that area, uh, you know, in the mid 1900s, 1960s, 1970s. It was all private property, uh, ranchers, and the federal government, through one means or another, came in and had taken over all of those ranches, except just a few, and the Hammonds were the, kind of one of the last last holdouts. And, and they had created this wildlife refuge out of all these ranches, uh, and basically turned it into a big weed patch. And, uh, I mean, just kind of give you an idea, not going into it too much, but Harney County, because of the Blitzen Valley, uh, was the wealthiest county in Oregon. They had the highest family incomes in Oregon when it was all private, when they were all ranches. And then they came in and decimated that, the Blitzen Valley, all those ranchers. And now it, it has the lowest family incomes in the state. And, and they just, they just turned it upside down, just literally turned it upside down, made it, made it like a, just a, a little federal, uh, you know, I don't know, a little territory of the federal government. And the Hammonds, the, now the, the Hammonds ranch is like a peninsula that goes down into the refuge, you know, this, this federal takeover. And so they want the Hammonds ranch. They want to add it to the refuge. The Hammonds has some good water. And so they start doing things like fencing off the Hammonds water so their cattle can't use it. And they say, well, uh, you know, the water, this, the water half belongs to us and the land around it belongs to us. You can't use the water. I mean, and just devastating the Hammonds. They blocked, they made it so that the Hammonds, even though traditionally for the last 150 years, they've, uh, used the, went right across on the roads to their other properties to, with their cattle, they would drive their cattle across the, the, through their, they stopped them and blocked them up from doing that. So making them like truck their cattle, which is very expensive, all about a hundred miles around just to go across like 10, 15 mile area. Um, and, and then, then they began, they went just as far uh, further, they began to use prosecution against the Hammonds. And I'll explain that just a little bit here if I can quickly. So the Hammonds, what's very common in that area, because there's tons of grass, it's just really, really beautiful land for cattle and grazing and so forth. But the grass grows so thick that every year, almost every year, they, they burn it down. They do a prescribed burn. So and they burn it down. And then the next year, that green grass comes up. Well, the Hammonds were doing this, and it jumped across the fence and burnt a few acres of federal federal controlled property, right, of the refuge. Well, so the, this was an opportunity for the federal government to put the Hammonds under dis duress. And they began to prosecute the Hammonds 
under the 1996 Death Penalty Act, uh, Anti-Terrorism Death Penalty Act of 1996, which was the act passed after the Oklahoma City bombing. And it says basically in it that if you, uh, you know, put fire to to a government property, federal government property, that you could be tried as a terrorist, there's a domestic terrorist uh, under t- uh, anti-terrorism uh, arsenal law, uh, law, which holds a five-year minimum sentence. And so they use this law that was supposed to be for, you know, to stop bombing of federal buildings against the Hammonds for an accidental uh, little bit of burning that benefited the land prescribed burn. They said, well, this is federal property and they burnt it. So we're going to use this anti-terrorism death penalty act of 1996 against them. They prosecuted them, uh, got them guilty in a federal uh, court. And then the judge was like, well, if I give them the minimum sentence of five years, that would be cruel and unusual punishment. He actually said that. He said it'd be a violation of the Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment. So he he sentenced the father to three months and he sentenced the son to 12 months. They went and did their time and then they came home. They thought they were done with it. They tried to get back, put their lives back together and the the federal government wasn't satisfied with that. The, the, the U.S. attorneys who were trying to destroy and Frank Papagni was the lead U.S. attorney in that. And so they went back and tried to overturn the sentencing with the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit overturned it and said that they have to go back for the remainder of the five years. And that's when I got involved. That's about the time when I found out and heard about all of this. So you get involved in what way and how many others are getting involved at this point? So I just began to advocate for them. I I mean, I had to reach, I, I could reach millions of people with my, you know, platform and emails and you know, Facebook and all of that. So I just began to blast out the facts of this case and I was getting tons of support for them, tons of, tons of advocacy. And then I also began to meet, I was meeting with the sheriff to try to get him to stand for them. I was meeting with the uh, local representatives, county commissioners, state representatives, uh, and trying to get them to stand for this families, to stand against this uh, injustice. And what happened, Matt, was so concerning and should be concerning to all people across this country because what happened is the FBI went behind me and threatened our legislators that if they communicated with me anymore that they could be complicit in a federal crime. And so all of a sudden, they just stopped communicating. They were afraid. Your state legislators here in Idaho. State legislatures, the sheriffs, the county commissioners. And so they stopped communicating. So now I got this huge momentum and trying to get the state legislatures to, you know, to do their job, which and they openly admitted that this was a miscarriage of justice. But now they're afraid for their own freedom. They're afraid they're going to be prosecuted by the federal government. Uh, so they all of a sudden stop and won't do anything. And we're trying to get the, our representative government, our republic, republic form of government to, to act in the way that it's supposed to act. And the FBI, which is a, you know, a 
uh, agency, a, a bureaucracy of the federal government comes in and threatens, uh, you know, prosecution if they do their job according you know, exactly what they're uh, voted in and, and elected to do. And it caused this huge, huge problem because now all this momentum and people, you know, wanting to make this right now have all of a sudden been dammed up and it's like building up and there's no like prudent way to go to make this happen because they stopped it. And uh, so anyhow, at that point, like I, I wanted to just call it quits. Like I, I, you know, I'd done my job. I want to go back to my, you know, and try to make my life back. And I just, I just felt like if I did, I'd be accountable to the Lord for stopping. And so eventually uh, I decided that the best thing to do, and I felt, really driven is to go into the refuge headquarters which in the winter they're completely like nobody's in there they're completely like closed down and, you know yeah. there's it's and so there was nobody in there and use that place as a as a place to get international attention and to try to okay. put so much pressure uh on them that that they would make this right that they get this situated mm-hmm. and so a handful of us went in there we immediately started getting international attention. We opened it up. The mm-hmm. people were coming and going. We had like school uh, groups coming and, and and going through seminars. We had legislatures, you know, commissioners from all over, states all over coming. And it was like this hub of communication. And we were really control started controlling the narrative. Did you feel at at risk or in danger while you were there? Oh, yeah. We were constantly being threatened. In fact, the FBI started to, they took over the, uh, the airport downtown or in, in Burns and started building up this, you know, and eventually they got to where there's like 400 men there and we're just being open and peaceful. And so we, you know, there was this threat and this buildup that was building and, uh, ultimately make, you know, to make a long story short, we were winning the PR battle again and, uh, we were invited by the sheriff of Grant County and the people of, of that area to come and to communicate with them of what we were doing. And so we left the refuge and was driving over to Grant County, Oregon, which I look back and say, well, we probably shouldn't have left the refuge. We should have just stayed there, but we left. And there's a spot going over the, the mountain pass where you get no service, no cell service, you're in the trees, you're in the high pines there's lots of snow there and as we were going up over they ambushed our our vehicles how so well they had the roads lined they began to fire into the vehicles they first pulled us over and and then there was a shot that was fired and lavoy was like scared he was one of the drivers lavoy finicum and he was afraid that they they were just going to open fire on it and ultimately they did do that they had a roadblock. He got stopped at the roadblock. He gets out. He has his hands in the air saying, because they're firing into the vehicle. They're opening firing into the vehicle with just opening fire while, while there was, you know, while people were in it. And he gets out to try to draw fire away from it. And he has his hands in the air. This is all on video. So there was a drone that was, they have it on. And they, and he's saying, shoot me because he's trying to draw people, the fire away from the vehicle. And with his hands in the air, they shoot him in the back three times and kill him. They shot my brother in the arm. He was in the vehicle. Uh, this is all filmed. Uh, 
Shauna, Shauna Cox actually had the, the, you know, calm of mind to actually get her camera out and film, which is amazing. Yeah. That's unique for that time period. People today are numb of spirit and pull out their cameras and, um, film just about every, everything that's going on in the world, perhaps wrongly, but, uh, it takes a certain kind of calm of mind and, uh, it's, it's not, it wasn't the ha the cultural habit of society to pull out iPhones and start filming things back then. And it wasn't an iPhone. She actually had a camera that could record oh. video. And so she recorded it on that. And um, what year does this happen? So this was in 2016. I mean, we had social media, but it wasn't like, I don't think we had, uh, yeah, they could do live. They were, they were able to do like live, but this was, you know, she did, she had her camera and pulled it out and, and what it showed it, because later the FBI lied about them shooting and all of that. And I mean, you could, they didn't know that she had recorded it. And so we were able to leak that out and show that they were lying, you know, that they were opening fire and then they never gave us the vehicle back. So they never, we never got Lavoie's truck back because they didn't want us to know how many. Because there were bullet holes. Know, bullet holes. My brother has, still today has a, a, a bullet in his arm. You could see a wow. perfect little 223 round in his shoulder. So you said, you said you were trying to be open and peaceful. You guys are ambushed later. Did you uh, ever advocate for violence or use violence yourself? No, ne never. It was never. You know, we always insisted we had the right to defend ourselves, but never, ever once did we ever. This was never about, this was about the federal government hurting people in our, in this, in, in the ranching and land users industry. That's what this was about. It just, it's never been about violence. Never, never has and never will be. So were you convicted of anything or were, were, were charges brought against you or others? Yes. So at that time, they, they arrested us. They didn't have charges, charges at the time, but it took them a, a week or two to, to make up charges. And then they charged us and we were incarcerated. And then we were, then, then at that time, then they were able to get charges in Nevada too. So they charged us in Oregon and they charged us in Nevada. And so we had to fight through our, a trial in Oregon. Uh, it took us about 10 months. We were incarcerated in federal detention centers the entire the whole time. time. Yep, entire time. And we get finally get to trial in Oregon. We go through an eight-week trial in Oregon, um, and we win. We, we, we were acquitted on all charges. Wow. All, all charges, completely. So held, every, in, held in prison the whole time, and you're acquitted time. on all charges. So we were acquitted. From a, from, you know, in a federal court on all charges and they still won't let us go. They transfer us down to Nevada and hold us down there for another, what, you know, 12 or 14 to 15 months. And the majority of that time I was in solitary confinement and it was, it was really rough. Say that again. How many months were you in solitary confinement? So I was in solitary confinement over 12 months. Of the two years I was in federal prison. Communication with your family? From the very beginning of the time of their arrest to the time when we finally got out, I'd never once had any physical contact with my family. They would not let us see our families. Now we could phone, we could phone them. And if they came, they could do a video visit, but we could never have any physical contact with them. 
you know, and I got this little family out there just struggling, trying to, you know, all of us do. There was 26 kids because they, they went and arrested my brothers, my dad, others. And, uh, they, you know, it was, it was very, very difficult. So there's a, there's got to be an effort underway during that time then. I mean, not only to comfort children, there's young children involved in this, but to teach them properly about what's happening. And, um, because I'm sure whether it's in the public or on TV, they get to hear or see, especially some of the older kids, teenagers, uh, how bad of a guy their dad is, who, you know, whether it's you or your brothers, right? And so how, how successful do you think your family has been at, at uh, both comforting and protecting those children during that time and communicating them the reality of the situation? How did the kids take it? All of our wonderful wives, I mean, I'm talking about my dad and my, you know, the five of us, all of they, you know, they stuck, they stuck with us. You know, there was never, you know, no divorce, no nothing like that, even though it was extremely, uh, very difficult time. And we were very open with, you know, our children as much as we could communicate with them. And our, our spouses were as well. And we, you know, very much because my dad is, is this way and it's, it's, it's very much to his credit that, you know, to lay the truth on the table and to let, let the person decide. And that's how we did it with our children as well. That's how we've raised them. Hey, look, here's what, what the truth is. Here's what we believe is right, but you get to decide. And all of them are, I mean, and I say all of them, and my dad has a whole bunch of grandchildren and they are amazing little people. Uh, they are amazing people. Uh, not one of them has turned against or said that in any way that they felt like this was wrong. In fact, they just say just the opposite, that this was right. It was very difficult for them as well. Uh, but, and we're talking about, you know, at that time there's 26 children. There's more now. And uh, it's been, you know, eight years since that happened. This was April of 2014 and then April two, you know, then, 2016. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I love that. I love that question, Matt, but, and I can say that my family is very, very supportive of each other and we stand together very strong in what, in what we did. We truly, truly believe, we truly know that what we did was right. And we know that it was of the Lord and that we, and that we did the best we can, could in the circumstances we found ourselves. Hey, I think that's great. You've got a lovely picture of your family on your website, amabundy.com as well. And it uh, sounds to me, just based on a couple now of interactions with you, you're exactly the kind of guy that our federal government Department of Defense is trying to purge from our military. Yeah. <laughs> Patriotic, love their country, and willing to stand their ground in the face of oppression, tyranny, illegal mandates. Uh, and you know, it's interesting about the numbers that you've cited. You, your father ends up being one out of 50 plus ranchers that ends up staying put and uh, some of that isn't just driven by cowardice of course some of that circumstance and people trying to do the best thing for their families so i'm not a, i'm not making any assertions that everyone was a coward except for your father but the, per, the percentage is, is fascinating i mean you've got about two percent three percent of those ranchers end up being able to stay put stay on the ground and we're seeing the same numbers actually with our military right now it's not related to you your campaign or your story per se 
But again, an example of the Defense Department digging in its heels, insisting on a shot mandate for its troops right now that's going to purge about one, one or 2% of the troops in the end. We're talking many tens of thousands of our Guard members across the country. Over 700 of our pilots are on the chopping block right now. Uh, average time in service, 14 years. And we're gonna we're gonna throw our readiness by the side and insist upon a mandate that that is against people's consciences. But what's interesting is that the number of people involved amounts to about one or two percent uh, that are willing to actually, you know, uh, firm up their backbone a bit, stand for their principles and their morals, have some courage, and and insist that our liberty is more important than some political agenda. It's so concerning to me. Matt, you you telling me that, and we had a conversation before about that, and I mean this this purge of the military of those who are truly willing to stand for you know really what's right is so concerning to me because um, again it's that double-edged sword it's that it's that useful that fire that useful tool or terrible master. And I mean, if you purge those out of the military that are that are morally bound to the Constitution, if you will, uh, morally bound to protecting the people rather than to protecting the state, if you will. I mean, I know these are hard things to, to kind of contemplate, but if you purge the people out of there, then what 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 does the military become? Uh, what are they capable of? Uh, and that, these are the same acts that have happened before. These are the same acts that, you know, have have led into genocides. And I mean, and, I, and I'm not saying that to, as a hyperbole or as a conspirator. These are the facts that have happened prior in militaries and in policing agencies that cause a large group of people to have a tremendous amount of power that aren't morally bound. That's right. You know. Um... The last chapter of my book, Irresistible Revolution, is called The Wrath to Come. It's a phrase I steal from John the Baptist, who's having a confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees, and he shouts at them, it sounds like, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? They show up there where he's baptizing, and um, you know, I, I try to lay out there a warning for where we're headed if we pursue this path that insists on government overreach as kind of a, a standard, um, constantly imposing um, ideological agendas on people. Um, and, and we're seeing this is generating a, a polarized environment. And um, despite efforts to warn others about the dangers of the path that we're walking, sometimes people just don't get it. And they'll allege that we're the ones that are actually trying to incite violence, which I find sad. Uh, just yesterday on my Facebook page, uh, a, a man that I know who at one point has seemed to me to be fairly bright and with whom I've worked in the military in the past uh, asserted that um, I'm sowing the seeds of civil war. And like you, I've never once advocated uh, publicly or privately, frankly, uh, and that's the honest truth, uh, for violence in this country. Uh, and I don't, I don't believe that that's going to solve our problems right now. We live in a very different age and time and context in human history, uh, than say, uh, 1776 America. And, um, so I, I, 
for the record, yet again, I don't believe that uh, that's going to solve our problems. In fact, it, it frankly furthers the Marxist agenda, which is the violent overthrow of incumbent governments. Um, so how do you, how do you, now I've imposed on, on your time quite a bit already uh, for this long form interview, and you're very, very busy executing a, um, I shouldn't, let me, let me choose my words more carefully, running a, a campaign for uh, the governor of Idaho. And, and, but I do want to now change gears. Um, you know, you spend time in federal prison after those are the things that kind of make the Bundy name famous over the past decade, uh, both in the country and internationally. But now you're running a, a waging a campaign for governor. And I'd like to kind of rapid fire briefly go through various issues and just ask. I'm not asking for yes or no answers. I hate those myself, but maybe give, um, some succinct responses to your views on some issues and I'll, I'll put a few challenges to you and um, like you to talk about that governor's race just briefly, if that's okay. And if you've got the time. Absolutely. I do. I do, Matt want to, uh, if I can, I can wrap, wrap this up because my, my, we ended up uh, beating him again in Nevada uh, and we walked out of the federal courts uh, without even, with no convictions, we were an innocent man. We walked out of there without even a misdemeanor, went back to ranching. My my father continued to ranch, still today ranches, so that was a Down big win. Yeah, we beat them. We beat them in their own court in Oregon. We beat them in their own court in Nevada. And because of the international attention that we got on the Hammond situation in Oregon, President Trump pardoned both uh, Dwight and Stephen Hammond. And got them out of those prisons and, and sent them back home to ranching. Awesome. And then, you know, we've won in, in, in other little uh, cases as well. So ultimately, this is a story of success. I mean, that it's is. certainly trials. Of, but, and we've, we, we, they spent $100 million trying to prosecute my family. And we beat them. And we didn't do it alone. We did it with the, the, the direction and, and power of the Lord. Uh, he protected us. And, uh, you know, we know that. We understand that. But this is a story about success. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be going and trying to run for governor. I mean, you know, if I had a just a full history of loss, 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 and just, uh, you know, I wouldn't be saying I had, I'm qualified to go and try to win some battles for the people of Idaho. So, mm. I mean, that, I just want to kind of use that That's to excellent. go into yeah. this. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, sorry for not closing that up. Uh, neatly, but that's uh, an important point that you make here, and it's that uh, you weren't convicted, and these other guys aren't convicted. You're acquitted on all charges, both in the states, uh, state of Oregon and in the state of Nevada, and go back to your lives, or try to. And uh, now you find yourself in the political arena. You don't strike me as someone who has uh, terrible political ambition, although you're uh, very competitively waging a race for governor right now. Um, have you ever thought you'd be interested in uh, uh, waging a political campaign? Never. I mean, I say never uh, because it was just, it's just so far from what I would want and what my nature is. I mean, I did, I was the student body president in high school. That doesn't qualify for me running for office. So was, I mean, I, I never had the desire to, to be, you know, in political affairs. Uh, again, I felt that it was my duty. I saw what was happening, what happened during 2020, and I saw what the governor did locking down the state of Idaho. And, 
basically claiming authority he didn't have and the danger that we were in as a state and as a people, you know, and I, I just, I had to react. I had to do something. And, and I believed that the right thing to do was to run for office and not just run for any office to run for governor because most of the powers and abuses that are happening to the people are happening, are coming from the executive agencies, uh, both on a federal and a state level. And as governor, you know, my duty is to uh, be the head of the executive branch. And I believe that a governor could go in there and make a tremendous amount of impact uh, in getting the, fed, the uh, executive agencies under control. And then also defending the people against the federal agencies that are coming down upon them. Well, I think that's one of the reasons uh, someone like Ron DeSantis, for example, continues to make headlines and has become extremely popular in the state of Florida. It's because there's a sense that here's a governor who's willing to try and protect and shield his people from the encroachments of an unjust federal government overreach. That's exactly right. And And it's what the state was designed for. They were designed to check and balance anybody who was coming down upon the people's, you know, rights. And whether it's a street criminal or a government criminal, that's what the state is for. That's what a governor's duty is. And Ron DeSantis shows how popular it actually can be, how people really want it. And that gives me a lot of confidence in my campaign. So talk to me about uh, what percentage of Idaho's land is controlled by the federal government? So it's actually 63%, but you have to cut out the military bases and the, the Indian reservations, which leaves 61% of Idaho's land is being unconstitutionally controlled by the federal government. 61%. Yeah, and Matt, just to add another statistic on top of that, 72% of subsurface mineral rights are being controlled by the federal government in Idaho. Say that again. 72% of the subsurface mineral rights are being controlled by the federal government. So, 61% so how does that impact land, uh, businesses, citizens in Idaho? Well, so... Th- I mean, this isn't there, stuff I think through. And so no, I'm, I'm and interested wh- it's why so, it's a huge deal. It, it is huge. It's huge for every Idahoan. It's one of the most concerning things that is happening in our state because it's causing four ma- major problems. One is Idaho has not been able to pay its own bills for the last 38 years. Because the federal government is controlling our land and our resources, and that's where wealth is generated. And so we are not able to use that. So we can't pay our own bills. So we have to go back to the federal government and ask for them. And they give us about 36%. So over a third of our budget comes from the federal government. And all of it comes with strings attached to it. So that's why we get Common Core in our schools, critical race theory. That's why we the use of force policy, federal use of force, force policies in our in our policing agencies. That's why, you know, our little counties are pushing uh, federal and UN type building codes in our counties. It's all because we're taking this money and they're saying, if you take this money, you have to do this. And so we can't pay our own bills. We can't be independent, an independent state because they're controlling our land. That's number one. Number two is we're creating a affordable housing crisis here. We're landlocked and we can't build outside the small area that we're landlocked in. And so we're all fighting over the land that's, that's available. It's a supply and demand issue. 
And so land prices are way high. Not only that, building prices are way high because we can't harvest our own forests. We can't mine. We can't, you know, use our own natural resources in the state. So we have to import them. Uh, for example, Bonner's Ferry, which is heavily wooded forest, beautiful forests, um, they're importing lumber out of Canada and paying four times the price. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. So our building and our, and our housing costs are enormous because of, uh, this land control. Number three is the, where we are building, we're building on our agricultural land. So we're destroying our number one industry in Idaho. And, uh, it's, it, we're more and more, we're building massive amounts of, uh, houses rather than building out on these hills and areas where it's perfect places to build and preserving our agricultural land. Because the federal government won't let us build on it, we are uh, building on our agricultural land and destroying our number one industry. And then last but not least, because of this control and this landlock issue, the young people are are growing up and they're not able to stay in these little towns. They're having to move to the cities. And so our cities are building up high-rise apartments rather than building out. We're getting smog and traffic and all of this. And when that happens, it just naturally we lose our conservative identity and we get a population that's so dense that they began to control politically the rest of the state. And that is certainly happening as well. It's all these problems are happening because of the federal land control and it's completely unconstitutional. In fact, I'll give you a statistic to kind of just wrap this up on. If you go to Nebraska, which was established right around the same time as Idaho, um, just a few years earlier, Nebraska has 1.4% federally controlled land. Idaho has 61%. If you take a line so and draw it, well, I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, point it out. If you take a line and on the Colorado Rockies and you go east of the Colorado Rockies, it's the average federally controlled land east of the Colorado Rockies is 2.4%. West of the Colorado Rockies is 51% federally controlled. And what happened was the West was very arid and it was developed later. And people didn't populate it and come in and claim it. So the federal government in the, and actually in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s began claiming this land as theirs right in the middle of the states. And it's completely unconstitutional, and it's made the states in the West, 11 Western states, like second-class states where we can't pay our own bills. We can't use our own land. We can't use our own natural resources. We are truly like second-class citizens in the United States of America. And that's wow. what that's what it's become. And we have to fight these battles. We have to fight this battle, and I plan on, as governor, taking back these lands fighting that constitutional battle and getting them in the hands of the people of the state of Idaho. You know, that's excellent context for some of the problems we face. I, I've heard and uh, myself, I'm guilty of just blaming Californians for some of the prices around here, but you know, local governance matters a great deal. It matters a great deal. And we're learning this more and more with each passing year. But uh, we looked all over the mountain West for a home after I separated from the Space Force last September. 
We looked in Utah, Arizona. I'm from Arizona. My wife's from Colorado. We looked in Utah where we've got family. We've, we looked in Idaho for about five minutes in Wyoming and changed our mind. And after doing all, we, we thought, man, the prices in Idaho are outrageous. And I just instantly thought, well, it's because so many Californians are moving into Idaho. I think, of course, that's a part of it. They bring cash. They drive up the the real estate uh, values, but this is a really interesting perspective that local governance can can seriously impact uh, this. Perhaps I mean Californians go everywhere in the country; they go all over yeah. the place. But exactly. everything's expensive here. Well, and it's just a supply and demand issue, and we simply don't have mm-hmm. enough supply for the amount of people that are here. And it's making it so that our young people are facing the reality of never owning a home. That's where wow. they're at. In Idaho, yeah, never owning a yeah. home. And Odd. I do want to say because the, the, you know, the hunters and fishers and campers and so forth, which I am one of them, get all concerned that, oh, we're going to make all of Idaho into housing. Now, we're talking about 30, 33 million acres that the federal government controls in Idaho. 33 million acres. So let's take a million, maybe a million and a half of that around these towns and cities and open them up for development. And then preserve the rest for our hunting, hip fishing, hiking. We're talking about 33 million acres. We could take even 5 million acres of this land that's around these town, these cities and towns and open them up. I mean, 5 million acres is way more than we're needing to add to the supply right now. But right. just think if we did that, we wouldn't lose anything as far as hunting, hiking, fishing, and all of that. And we would still make it so that the next generation has affordable housing. Right. Yeah, excellent uh, idea. Uh, and there's a lot of open spaces in Idaho. Yeah, I've seen. Every time I fly out of here, out of the Boise Airport, I I look around and think, man, just open space everywhere outside of these these towns. Uh, let's let's try and wrap up in uh, the next five minutes. Let me ask you some rapid fire questions here. Okay. Excellent. Um, uh, we've covered law enforcement. I'm not going to go there. Uh, we've touched upon this. Let me just ask you about property taxes. What's your view yeah. on property taxes? Uh, I, I believe we need to eliminate our current property tax system and replace it with a consumption tax. Uh, I believe that this is extremely important because right now the state has a way to lean and take our private property and to control it, to really own, own it. Uh, we need to eliminate that so that we truly own our own properties and still fund the legitimate purposes of government. And that's done through consumption tax, not, not our current property tax system. Uh, due process. Ah, the rule of law. Uh, I believe we need to go back to a restitution-based penal system and not an incarceration-based penal system. Of course, there's some need for short-term incarceration, uh, but we need to implement uh, the restitution-based penal system that our founders put in place. And I believe that that will suppress crime, uh, protect liberty, and also make it so that the taxpayer is not uh, paying an exorbitant amount of price, uh, uh, money uh, to incarcerate uh, lifetime criminals, including implementing capital punishment again. Yep. Uh, talk to me about uh, parents' rights, education, public education, and your views on homeschool. Yeah, so the duty and the right to educate your ch- children uh, resides with the parents. It is not jurisdiction of the state. It is the duty and responsibility of a parent. Um, if they choose to have public education or the state assist them in that, that's their choice. But I believe that it should be the parent's decision of where and the money, any money, any public funds 
should be controlled, uh, meaning the parents should be able to decide where that money is spent. Um, I also feel like our administration, school administrators and teachers need to be freed up to actually be able to teach what they want to teach. And with both the parents deciding where the money goes and the administrators and teachers being freed, you'll create this almost free market type system inside the public schools that will actually really be a tool to educate children. However, above all of that, parents have the right to educate their children without the state's involvement or without being in a public or state school system. And that right needs to be protected uh, completely and solely uh, on its own as well. I've got a few other items here. I'm going to skip ahead and, and I'm going to, um, you know, at the beginning of my show, I read uh, an ad uh, for Patriot Mobile who sponsors my show. And um, so I'm going to, I'm going to put in a plug and an ad for Emma Bundy for governor here. And he's not even paying me. Oh, man. <laughs> Maybe you can buy me some ice cream later after you That's win. That's right. That sounds um, good, man. So, I want to say that um, I don't disagree with anything I've heard you say. In fact, I very much like what I've heard, both in our private conversation uh, and uh, here on this interview on the show today. Um, uh, for the life of me, I can't figure out how any Idahoan could not support Emma Bundy for governor, uh, especially given what we've seen the past couple of years. I haven't even been here but but the last year, but uh, I talk to Idahoans all the time, even here in Boise and Meridian, and uh, I don't hear positive things come out of the mouths of people that live in Idaho, even my neighbor from California, uh, about the current governance of the state of Idaho, and they really want Idaho to be the Idaho, the stereotypical Idaho that they thought they had in mind when they moved here. So let me ask you, what are the chances of Ammon Bundy uh, successful run for governor? So they're actually uh, very, very good. And you pointed out why. We have, we know uh, for a fact that the Republican uh, Party base uh, members uh, are fractured about 50-50. They, you have the establishments and you have those that uh, truly want uh, to put forth conservative principles. And so the question that's being asked right now in Idaho are we going to be Republican or are we going to be conservative among the Republican Party? And more and more of them are coming my way and saying, look, we understand that you're not running as a Republican candidate because of all the things that go on in the Republican Party being controlled by the establishment. But we're supporting you. And uh, and then you've got unaffiliated voters. There's about 300,000 of them in Idaho. And we believe that we'll fare very well with them. Uh, you got Constitutional Party, Libertarian Party. You know, we will do very, very well and bring, you know, support from a majority of them. And then you've got these move-ins coming in. They're fleeing their their state to come to this state. And they're realizing that there is a deep state and an establishment here in Idaho, too. And it's the current leadership. It's the current governor and the current Speaker of the House that they are doing the exact same thing that they were doing in their states that they fled from. And so we believe we'll fare very well with them. And with those voting blocks, we have a, a true uh, great chance of winning this election. So we just have to keep doing more of what we're doing here, Matt, uh, and get this information out and let people see that, you know, that I'm exactly opposite of what the mainstream media is saying. And 
I mean, it really is that much. Uh, I mean, I, it's just, they've been lying. They're liars. They have an agenda. They do not want me to have any more support than what I can get myself. So they're going to, uh, do all they can to stop that. And, uh, you know, it's time for people to, you know, get a little more informed. Uh, you, you can't say it's your civic duty to just go down to the voting booth and vote when you haven't done any type of homework or found out really what's, what's good and bad about each, each candidate. And so I'm grateful for this opportunity, Matt. Yeah. Well, Hey, I I've really enjoyed our chat. I meet people all over the country, Ammon, um, Republicans, I, Democrats don't invite me to speak anywhere. Uh, but, uh, I meet Republicans all over the country. A lot of good people politically. I'm roughly aligned with these people. Uh, I say these people, I'm a registered Republican, but I'll tell you, um, I, I often come home from these trips a bit exhausted and share privately in my own home that, you know, I'm a little bit exasperated with, um, many of the people that I meet because there's some inauthenticity there that I don't appreciate about those who are vying for power in the political arena. And uh, that's uh, something I don't sense with you. I think you're genuine, authentic, likable. And again, I'll say it one more time. I can't for the life of me figure out why any Idahoan wouldn't support Emma Bundy for governor. So where can people go to see, to learn more about you, your campaign, and uh, how they can support you? So votebundy.com is the best place. So very simple, votebundy.com. I've got tons of information there, and I would recommend that you, of course, go through the videos uh, and go to my Keep Idaho, Idaho plan. Uh, you can link on it from the main page in multiple ways, Keep Idaho, Idaho plan, and read through it and see if you agree with it, uh, because that is what I'm going to be pushing for. That is uh, what I am going to be uh using the office of the governor to accomplish and working with the legislature, you know, cleaning up the executive uh, branches of branch of government here in Idaho and stopping uh, the flow of all these other things coming into Idaho uh, that are taking away from that. So uh, votebundy.com, uh, go to the Keep Idaho, Idaho plan. Great. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Matt. It's been my pleasure.